In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory, Glory be, be to, to the, the Father, Father, and to the, the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, Spirit as, as it was in the beginning, beginning is now, and will be forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue to study the epistle lesson for the upcoming Sunday. Uh, as you're listening in, know that we are trying something a little bit different today. Uh, we actually have about a dozen people in the sanctuary with us as we're recording the podcast this morning. Uh, and it's the Tuesday morning Bible study. And so normally you hear just Paul and I musing about the readings and the hymn, but if somebody who is uh, in the room wants to ask a question, they'll ask the question and then I'll restate it so everybody listening can hear what that is. And we will uh, go ahead and have the, the interaction from people gathered in the room with us. And so Paul and I are very excited about this morning. Uh, it's just an adjustment we have to make in order to make all of the schedules work this week. And so uh, we hope that it's enjoyable for those who are listening at home as well. This Sunday, we uh, observe the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus is always the Sunday immediately after Epiphany. So Epiphany is January 6th. And so if you observe Epiphany on the day, it would have been last Thursday, making the baptism of our Lord last Sunday. Because we did not observe Epiphany on January 6th, we pushed that back one week, so it was Sunday. We'd also then observe Baptism of Our Lord one week delayed, which means that um, this is serving as the Baptism of Our Lord week. It's the way that we always begin the season of Epiphany. It's a great way to frame Epiphany. Epiphany is about the revealing of who Christ is. So we have Epiphany beginning with the Magi coming, being revealed to the Gentiles, followed by the baptism of our Lord to hear God say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And we continue to see the revelation of Jesus throughout the course of Epiphany, culminating with Transfiguration Sunday, the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, where Jesus goes up on the mountain, he transfigures, and we hear God say again, this is my son with whom I am well pleased listen to him. And so Epiphany is bookended with God revealing to the world, this is my son. And all the weeks in between are revealing different aspects of who Jesus is. We see miracles where he controls creation. We see miracles where he heals people. We hear uh, the stories of the uh, recruitment of the disciples to become fishers of men. We hear all of these stories, and it's all designed to give us a different glimpse of Jesus and his purpose over the course of the several weeks that Epiphany is. And Epiphany is a different length every year because it is longer or shorter depending on the season of Easter. This year, Easter is the second latest it can be. And so we have a long season of Epiphany this year. We are in it all the way through the end of February. Um, and so we hear almost all of the readings available in Epiphany this year, but we will be short the very last one. Well, and at the very beginning, too, um, you may remember that some years right after Christmas, you hear the reading about uh, the wedding at Cana. Mm -hmm. And because we've moved Epiphany and the baptism of our Lord this year, we don't get that reading about right. the wedding at Cana. So when you don't observe Epiphany on January 6th, you always have this question of, do you 
give up Christmas too, which is the story of Jesus in the temple, or do you give up Epiphany 1, which is the wedding at Cana? You lose one of those two stories. And so you've got to make a decision, which one do you give up? And so we try to alternate years or, or make sure that we're getting them both in. This year we favored Jesus in the temple over the wedding at Cana. So next year we will try and keep in mind that we want to do the opposite, that we want to make sure the wedding of Cana is heard and the story of Jesus in the temple is the one that is missed. So as we look at this upcoming Sunday, the baptism of our Lord, the epistle reading is from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Paul, would you begin for us by reading chapter 6, verses 1 through 4? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died in sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Thank you. So Paul begins this section with a really important question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's dealing with the question of what we would call cheap grace. That kind of this idea that if we like to sin and God likes to forgive, it's a match made in heaven. So if sin means that we get to experience forgiveness, would it not be better for us to sin all the more so that we can experience even more of God's grace? Paul says, by no means should you do this. That's not what's going on here. He's reacting to his statements about the law that he makes earlier in the book of Romans, where he talks about that the more the law is revealed, the more sin becomes abundantly clear, because all of a sudden you recognize all the ways that you fall short of the glory of God. And so he's trying to hold this intention, and he doesn't want to give us a reason to just ignore sin altogether. And this is a challenge for the church today. What do we do with sin? Because we absolutely say church is where sinners belong. If you sin, this is the place where sin is dealt with. That being said, we don't ever want to celebrate sin that people are committing. And so the challenge for pastors and the Board of Elders, is how do you deal with the seriousness of sin while assuring people that they are forgiven? Because you can deal with the seriousness of sin in such a way that it makes people wonder, well, did God really forgive me? But on the other hand, you can't just say, of course God has forgiven you. Don't worry about it anymore because there are still consequences to sin. And so the struggle for pastors and church workers is how do you balance those two things out? making sure that people know that sin is serious and has consequences for it, but at the same time also live with the assurance that absolutely you are forgiven. And, and that becomes the challenge that we face. And the way that Paul deals with this is he looks at baptism. Now, the, what we hear next, verses 3 uh, through a good portion of the part we haven't read yet, sounds incredibly familiar to us. It is the text that is used during a funeral service when the casket is covered by the funeral pall. So if you remember in a funeral, 
we have the opening hymn, the invocation, and then the pastor comes down next to the casket and covers the casket or the urn with a white cloth that's called a, a, a funeral pall. And it is the symbol of baptism because they're covered in this white cloth. And while that covering is happening, this is the text that is read about being baptized into Christ's death so that you can also be baptized into his resurrection. And there's some beautiful things about the funeral pall. Uh, in most churches, ours included, they're incredibly beautiful. Uh, and they're just this uh, very brilliant white that captures the light. And it's a reminder to us that it doesn't matter who is under it. In the eyes of God, you are his child. So you could have the most basic, simple casket or the most ornate and expensive casket. But once the service begins, it's covered by Christ's baptism. And we all have this equal standing of being made beautiful by the work of God. Uh, and it's just this great testament about what's happening in the church. Uh, functionally, another thing that's worth pointing out is we never cover anything else under the pall other than the urn or the casket. So when veterans are here during the uh, visitation, oftentimes there'll be a flag over the casket. The flag is removed because we don't cover flags uh, with anything else. So the flag is taken off, the pall is put over, and then when the casket gets to the back of the church, the pall is taken off, and the flag is put back on to recognize we are moving out of the sanctuary and out into the world. And so that recognition of thanks from the world becomes the symbol that carries with them as well. And so both things happen together. And it's, it's also the reason that, the, that if we do military honors, that comes at the end. And, and right. once again, you have that symbolism of the flag out at the... Uh, right. It happens outside where the world is able to witness uh, all of that happening as well. That, and it's really loud to shoot guns inside the sanctuary. <laughs> um, so, but this is also the term of why we have pallbearers at a funeral. It's because pallbearers, part of what they are doing is they have the task of bearing the pall. So when the casket gets to the back, they help with the removal of the pall. And if there is a procession where the pall is put on in the back of the church before the casket is brought in, the pallbearers help with that process. And so that's why they're not called casket bearers or casket assistants or, or something like that. They're called pallbearers because they are the bearers of the baptismal pall. But somewhere along the way, a lot of churches got away from just using a pall because I would say we're the exception rather than the rule. Um, it is quickly regaining acceptance in Lutheran churches. So you're right. For many years, Lutheran churches had stopped uh, utilizing this practice. It is quickly uh, gaining acceptance broadly in Lutheran churches once again, um, which, is, which is fantastic because it's just a beautiful uh, part of the funeral rite. I think it helps that it's written right in the funeral rite now, um, and so it's, to skip it, it's very obvious that you're missing something. Before we move on from that, um, there's also the, um, the element of we, we give a, a garment of at, at baptism right. that ties in with this? Yes, and so we, uh, at baptism, give a white cloth. Here it's a white blanket made by members of the congregation to show that you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And at your funeral, you receive a covering to show that you are still covered in the righteousness of Christ. And so the whole funeral service is about anchoring you back into your baptismal identity. 
um, one of the congregations in our area takes that a step further. And if it is somebody who has a copy of their baptismal certificate, if you still have that with you, they use that as the bulletin cover. And so if you go to a funeral there, instead of having a, a picture on the front, it's the bulletin itself is a copy of the baptismal certificate reminding you that everything that's happening in that service is wrapped inside of the baptism of, of our, that Christ has given to his people. And so we, we're always looking to anchor everything back into baptism at a funeral. The only thing better than that would be as if we made those blankets so large you could, and you had them your whole <laughs> and life. And you kept them, You yeah. could use them at the end of your life. That is an investment <laughs> in the future if, you, if we started making them because uh, at this point, we'd be waiting another 80 years before they started to show, hopefully 80 years before they started <laughs> to show back up into usage. Um, we have used them when infants have passed. Uh, that the, we give a baptismal blanket uh, when an infant passes, and, and they will sometimes be wrapped in that. So looking then after verse 2, Paul gets to the meat of this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So he's answering that question of should we continue in sin by saying, well, no, you died to sin. Contrary to the death that happens with the physical body at the end of life, that is a consequence of sin. Baptism itself is death to sin, that a new person is being created. And we are buried with him by baptism. And so we can picture baptism itself as a burial with Christ in the grave, looking forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And the purpose of this is to walk in newness of life. We're not baptized um, by, in, in baptism, we're not baptized so that we can sin even more. We are baptized to signify we have entered into a new family with a new identity, and that has consequences for the way that we are going to choose to live the rest of our life. So with that in mind, let's jump into verses 5 through 11, please. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So I think the key to this whole section happens right in verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul is talking about two realities at this moment. One of the beautiful promises that happens is that upon your death, sin no longer affects you. You no longer get the option to sin. You just get to live in the glory of God. And so when you are in heaven, heaven is a place without sin. You don't have to worry about your neighbor mugging you because they like the coat you're wearing. You don't have to worry about somebody murdering you or um, 
hurting you in any kind of way. None of that exists in heaven. And so we have this image that death itself is this separation from sin uh, affecting you any longer as you wait for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And in the new creation, there is also no sin. But Paul's bringing this back into this life as well. Not only do you have, you don't need to wait until you die to have that experience of being set free from sin, but you can also have it in this life as well because you have been set free from sin. You can understand what sin is because the law has revealed it, and you can resist temptation. Notice he's not saying you are going to be free from sin. It's not that you're going to be sinless, but you are not bound to continue in sin. And so this is what we call sanctification, that the course of the Christian life is the life of understanding what God expects for his people. One of the things that has kind of changed in the way we talk as Christians over the last, oh, probably 50 to 100 years, is we talk about sin primarily as the things we should not do. And we've given up talking about Christian virtues, of what does it mean to live as a Christian. If you ask somebody, what does it mean to live as a Christian, they're probably going to give you a list of the Ten Commandments. Here's the things you can't do. But for much of Christian history, we talked about living as a Christian means you live in this way. You love your neighbor. You um, choose chastity and purity and generosity and humility. And these are virtues that we carry with us that describe a life of action as opposed to the commandments which, just, which give us a list of things that we should not do. And so it's an, a life of action versus a life of inaction. And when Paul's talking about this, that we are set free... Uh, verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin, he's saying we now have this opportunity to live the virtuous life. And a virtuous life isn't a perfect life, but it's a life striving towards certain ideals. And uh, I was listening to a podcast about this a couple of months ago, and it dealt with particularly the virtue of chastity and how uh, this pastor was arguing that perhaps the disservice we have been doing to our young people is when we talk about you shall not commit adultery, we spend a whole catechism period talking about here's the things you can't do with your boyfriends and girlfriends, and here's the things you can't do before you get married, as opposed to talking about here's what it means to lead a chaste life. You can make mistakes along the way and still pursue the virtue of chastity. And if we pursue this virtue of chastity, we're constantly modeling our life after this ideal of somebody who lives in a way that is uh, pure and devoted to their spouse, recognizing that there may have been sins that occurred along the way, but you can always return to this virtue of chastity over time. And he was contrasting that to the fact that in many ways the church has given up the virtue of chastity and held up the virtue of virginity. That you, to be sexually pure means you don't have any sex until you get married. And so virginity itself becomes the ideal, which it is. It is part of chastity. But once you lose that virginity status, you can't regain it. However, if you lose the chastity status, you could. 
Well, how does that change the way that we talk about the Christian life if we talk about Christian virtue as something we can strive for, and when we've lost it, we can strive for it again, as opposed to saying, once you lose it, you can never regain it. Now we move into this conversation that Paul lays out at the beginning. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. You've been forgiven. How do you pursue that virtue once again? But you can see where this starts to get tricky because when you're talking to high school and middle school students, <laughs> you've got to really anchor this virtue down pretty hard as something that they want to pursue because the temptation is going to be, well, I guess I can always come back to it later, but that gets us back into the cheap grace that Paul's arguing about in the beginning. And so he's laying this out for us that this is what baptism is doing for us. And it's, this is the text we use, again, for the funerals because of verse 5. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And there is the promise of baptism, that the Christian does not die forever because the Christian has the promise of the resurrection of the dead. And so we see in the baptismal rite the promise of the new Adam, the new life that comes from this, and it's really uh, just a beautiful way that Paul lays this out about the promise that God has for his people. So as we think about baptism, Paul, what hymn did you choose for us to look at this week? There's more than one in the baptism section that, that play off of this particular reading from Romans very strongly. And of the two... I selected 594, which is God's own child, I gladly say it. The other one is 604, if you want to look, look that one up at another time. That's almost a direct restatement of, of the Romans passage. And if you've never, never looked at those little scriptural citations at the bottom of the page, um, again, 594 in the Lutheran service book, the, the, at the very bottom of the page there, it lists some of the scripture references that the text is based off of. And 604 is St. Patrick's breastplate, right? I bind no, myself. No, 604 into... is, um, we know that Christ is raised and dies no more, um, I think. I uh, no, it's, I bind myself unto me, myself, or I bind unto myself today. So uh, which one were you thinking of? I was sure it was 604. 603 is we know that Christ is raised. That's the one I mean. Oh, I 603, you're off by a number. <laughs> So that's why I checked because I looked at it and saw that it was St. Patrick's breastplate. I thought, well, there's a lot of baptismal imagery there. But either way, we're looking at 594 for today. Right. God's own child, I gladly say it. If this is a, a kind of an unfamiliar hymn to you, uh, you should, should know that it was new to the LCMS hymnals uh, um, until it appeared in the supplement that came out in, in 1998. And, and those were hymns... Um, that were kind of used to, to test some new materials out before our current hymnal came out in, in 2006. So that was the first appearance of this hymn in one of our hymnals. And actually it was um, not the first appearance of the text, but certainly the first pairing of it with this particular tune. This tune was a, a very obscure tune by a Swiss composer, um, from the Baroque period. He was a, a virtual contemporary of Bach, and uh, most of his music is, is rather obscure, but he was kind of the equivalent of Bach in Switzerland, if you want to look at it that way. 
And um, this tune lay completely unused, undiscovered, not used as a hymn tune, certainly, until it was paired with this particular text in, in that hymnal supplement. So it was kind of a new contribution that the LCMS uh, Worship Committee brought to, to 20th century hymnody. But it's a contribution that was very quickly accepted. I think this one has some, some pretty broad acceptance throughout uh, Lutheran churches. It, yeah, it, it's catching on, but that is, the, that is the first appearance of it. Do we pair any other text with this tune? No. This no. is the only occurrence this, of this, this tune? This is the only occurrence. This is, as far as I know, it's the only uh, pairing of this tune, uh, text with this, this tune in, in English. Okay. Um, the name of the tune, if you look down in that same corner by the scriptural references, is, is Bachhofen, which is the last name of the composer. Very often, you'll, you'll find that the tunes are named for the first line of the hymn, and that's, especially with German language hymns, that's usually how it goes. Ein Feste Burg, a mighty fortress, that's where the name of the hymn tune comes from. Here it's the name of the composer. Um, and the, the composer, Bachofen, as I said, was the equivalent of, of Bach in Zurich at that particular time. His dates line up almost exactly. The, um, the author of the text, uh, Erdmann Neumeister, was also almost an exact contemporary of Bach. And his claim to fame was he wrote a lot of texts that were very orthodox Lutheran. And by that I mean he was, he, one of his um, goals in life was to, to uh, resist the tendency of pietism that was very much in the air at that time in Germany, uh, late late 16th century, early 17th century. Well, what's wrong with that? What's, what's wrong with pietism? You probably- Oh, you where prob should we begin? Well, where you begin. <laughs> but you've probably heard that term th thrown out, um, uh, pietistic hymns and, and pietistic theology. What's wrong with that? Well, the emphasis tends to be too much on, on feelings and individual experience rather than, than um, uh, orthodox theology and, and um, what God does for us mm -hmm. and to us, rather than waiting for some kind of a, a emotional response or, or feeling. So we still use the word piety today to describe the, the religious devotion or practice of individual Christians. So if you wake up every morning, you say a prayer and you read portals of prayer before, as you're drinking coffee, that would be an act of your own personal piety. It's what you are doing to live out the Christian life. Where pietism went wrong is it said there are certain things you must do in order to make sure that you are really living the Christian life and really feeling it. And so pietism hymns often deal with a lot of emotional uh, actions or have a lot of emotions built into them. They tend to really look at your feelings. Are you feeling uh, what God has done for you? And also looking almost to a, a level of purity within the people who are engaged in Christian life. Uh, this is the time when uh, communion starts to get tinkered with a little bit in Lutheran history of maybe we don't quite want it so frequently because it won't be as meaningful uh, as it would be if you had it less frequently. That's where some of these ideas start to take root that really come into fruition in the 1800s, early 1900s, and also have been something that the Lutheran church has been Recorrecting uh, over the last 30 to 40 years. 
and baptism gives us, a, gives us a lens to really look at this very carefully, especially as Lutherans understand baptism, because baptism is, is we look at it as, as this free gift of God, something that God does to us, whereas in other parts of Christendom, they look at it as, oh, well, I need to um, reach some kind of, uh, uh, of state of faith before my baptism is, is effective or, or appropriate even. And so as a corrective to that, uh, Neumeister was very insistent that yes, we have a proper understanding, a Lutheran Orthodox understanding of, of, of baptism. And he reflects that in this particular text. Some of it actually comes across a lot more clearly in the original German. If you look at, if you look at the, um, uh, the end of the first line there, in all the first four stanzas, it ends with, I am baptized into Christ. In the original German, I, I think the, the phrase is something like ich bin, ich bin getauft or Christ. Um, is cl close to that, Krista? Yes. And, and so- We can have a German check today because Krista's here. Yeah. <laughs> and and what's, what's lost there a little bit is, is you, you are almost, you are part of Christ. It, that comes across much more strong and strongly in the German than it does in the English. In English, we're, we're we're baptized into Christ, but in the German, it's also the Im implication of that we are part of Christ. And so um, that is, is, is part of the genius of his poetry here is that he emphasizes that uh, all four times in those, those first, first four stanzas. Well, then you may think, well, what about the last stanza? If you look carefully towards the end of it, the very last line there, last stanza, last line, um, he comes back to it one more time. I'm a I am baptized into Christ, I'm a child of paradise. So he doesn't leave that notion out of that final stanza. Right, but I like how he plays with that there. I am baptized into Christ, I'm a child of paradise. What a beautiful poetic way of, explain of saying we are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, because we hear that phrase all the time, we are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. But to say I'm a child of paradise it recasts that in a different light while still saying the same thing and allows us to contemplate it in a different lens. And the balance of the hymn unfolds what uh, baptism means to us, at least from a Lutheran understanding. Stanza one is kind of a definition. And then, and then if you look through stanzas two, three, and four, you see the three things that, um, right, right there at the beginning of the stanza, the three things that baptism helps us fight against sin, Satan, and death. Mm -hmm. They're right there at the beginning of the stanza. And then it unfolds how baptism does these miraculous things. It's also, um, as, as you said, I'm a child of paradise. Uh, we inherit the kingdom of God. This would be very useful as a funeral hymn, especially if you used uh, those last two stanzas, talking right. about death and how baptism really gives us that confidence and reassurance that really to die is gain. Right. Well, in the third verse, I th of all of them, I think is one of the most powerful for me. Satan, hear this proclamation, I am baptized into Christ. Drop your ugly accusation, I am not so soon enticed. This idea that when we're thinking about, uh, should, as, as Paul says at the beginning of chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace can abound? By no means. What do we have in its place? Satan, hear this proclamation. I am baptized into Christ. Get away. Get behind me, Satan. 
drop your ugly accusation. I'm not so soon enticed because we know of the better that is waiting for us. Well, then when we sing it, perhaps we should uh, uh, sing one, maybe one, three, and five would be good choices for us. Um, well, five, another thing about five is, is you can kind of look at it as a, uh, another way of expressing what we do after communion in the, in the Nunc Dividus. Um, uh, Lord, now let your servant right. go in peace. We've been released. We, we go in peace. Right. And, and the poetry in verse 5 continues that, as we said, it's just so rich in thinking about things in a different way. Uh, in that second line of verse 5, we get the phrase, open-eyed, my grave is staring. Imagine it, for a moment what it's going to look like on the last day when Christ returns and there's the resurrection of the dead. You're going to see all of these holes in the ground where graves used to be as people are there. And so you get this open-eyed vision or these, this vision of, of cemeteries with all of these open eyes staring as what they once held captive has been set free because you're not bound in that spot uh, for eternity. And so it's just beautiful, beautiful imagery. The, the tune for this, I think, is an interesting balance of singability, but also offering a little bit of challenge. So we've talked before on the podcast that we, hymns that are successful stay within a tighter range, uh, and this looks to be about an octave and a step, so very singable. But it gives us some rhythmic challenge in the sense that many syllables are spread over uh, multiple notes. So we get that right in the beginning. God's own child, I gladly say it. And so the challenge comes in paying attention to putting multiple notes on one syllable. It, it is a little bit aerobic in that way. You have to, there's, there's longer phrases and you have to get a lot of notes in uh, as part of the melody. And I noticed um, that, that they changed a couple of the notes from the original version of it, just to make it a little bit more obvious. If a, if a hip tune is new to you, sometimes uh, it'll take a little bit of a detour or a turn. I mean, you think you know where the melody is gonna go, and then it goes the opposite direction. Maybe you've had that experience trying to, trying to sing an unfamiliar hymn tune. You're like, oh yeah, the logical next note for this right. hymn would be this direction. Well, we talked about that last week. I had a really hard time singing the hymn from last week that you mm -hmm. picked because in my head, I kept hearing another one that had the similar opening sequence. So what they did was they, they altered a couple of the phrases to make them a little bit more consistent or predictable or in, in the way that you might expect the tune to go. So um, you'll, you'll notice that, in fact, one of the changes was that the very end of the hymn tune is almost a parallel of the beginning of it. So it kind of has an A-A-B-A form that it returns to very familiar material at the end to make it a little bit more uh, user-friendly, right. so to speak. Now, when we look at the um, structure of it, it's 8787-8877. That can't be a very common meter and for it, this. And it is not. So it's not interchangeable with a lot of, um, a lot of other poetry. Right. Yeah, so if you're looking at, uh, that's in the bottom right-hand corner as well, uh, that tells you what the syllable structure is of this poem. Uh, and so all poems have a syllable structure. Some are common, some are not. This would be a less common structure. Okay. So um, I'll, I'll use just the end of the melody as an introduction, and then uh, shall we sing one, three, and five? Sure, Sounds let's like sing one, selection. three, and five.
And so a great tune, um, and the, that tune that goes with this text really helps celebrate and embrace the joy, I think, that comes with this text. There is a lot of joy in that tune, which when you, when you think about the darkness that's in, you know, the last two stanzas talking about death and even about the, you know, the threatening nature of Satan in, in stanza three just seems very much at odds with it. But it's, it's that reminder that even in the midst of all this, you, you, you move forward in joy. Right. Yeah, and so this, I think, does a great job of capturing joy. Almost feels like a dance tune, uh, uh, like a Renaissance dance feel to it. We pray. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Oh, Christ, have mercy upon us. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, Father who art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord Jesus Christ, at this hour you hung upon the cross, stretching out your loving arms to embrace the world in your death. Grant that all people of the earth may look to you and see their salvation. For your mercy's sake, we pray. Oh, Amen. Man. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.